You're listening to the ESO Network, your station for all things geek. Hello, please let me see your ticket stubs for the double-edged double bill. This week, Peter Jackson presents the lovely Brain Dead. Each week, Adam Thomas and Thomas Mariani will come to the table to discuss the randomly selected yin and yang of a double feature. Then, both will have to pick a number between 1 and 10 in order to seal their fates for the next episode. One will have two good movies, the other two bad ones. Let the chaos begin. And I am Adam Thomas, and I kick butt for God. And I'm Thomas Mariani, and this is the story of how I was murdered. Stay tuned to the end of the show. You'll find out. Hopefully it's not as long and boring. (laughs) <laughs> well, hopefully not. Hopefully not, yes. Oh, uh, but, uh, oh, oh, wait, is there a third person here? Of course there is, yes. We have a guest with us this evening, uh, new to the show, um, but if you're a big listener of uh, Film Related Podcast, you might have heard our special guest who is the founder and editor-in-chief of a great website called Talk Film Society. It's Mr. Marcelo Pico. Marcelo, how's it going? going great thanks for having me guys um i hope somebody has listened to at least one of uh our 595 podcast episodes at this point uh just listen to one folks please <laughs> <laughs> that's true. basically just record your entire life <laughs> i mean we're, we're about to cross 600 listen to one of them for god's sakes <laughs> <laughs> no they're playing a great podcast well we've had plenty of people from like sequels which, of course, yes, you host over yes. on your site. Yes. Um, and a bunch of other stuff. Uh, you do a bunch of great work on there, and uh, I'm a loyal patron of Talk Oh, Society, yes. So. Uh, let me say thank you, Thomas, for that. Um, I didn't blackmail uh, him at all with that knowledge. <laughs> <laughs> it's in the the, the, the Patreon, uh, you know, contract. Pa- every patron of this Patreon, uh, I have to do whatever they say for, you know, a year. So, Thomas, you got me. I'm, I'm going to be here next week, in the next episode. I mean, <laughs> I'm here. He's always going to be in the corner. You'll never hear him. But most of the You'll never hear him, out. but yeah. It's it's the podcast and also the writing. We have plenty of great stuff over there. I have to just keep saying it's not just me. It's like um, sequels, Monsters Never Die, uh, it, it, it Pod Be You, all those great podcasts and all the writing we do over there too. So we do good stuff. Well, and obviously you have a huge interest in film, which is why we decided to invite you on here. And we sent you a list of topics and you immediately yeah. glommed on to Peter Jackson, who is our subject du jour for the day. Uh, why did Peter Jackson pop out to you? Why, why him in particular? Well, twofold. Uh, one, I love the man. I've loved him since The Frighteners. That's when I first knew of Peter Jackson. Then, of course, he did Lord of the Rings, which I'm sure some people have heard of. I just find him intensely interesting as a filmmaker, good and bad. Uh, I also currently co-host um, a Lord of the Rings podcast with four other great people called Going Helm Steep. So this just uh, so happens to be, yeah, just me saying I want to talk about Peter Jackson more. <laughs> Rewatching. A classic, a favorite of mine, and also watching for the first time another movie. So yeah, that that's why I, I, I picked Peter Jackson. 
Well, by the way, Going Helm's Deep is such a great title for a podcast. <laughs> I, it's so I'd, good. I'd like to thank uh, Rocky Juarez, uh, one of our co-hosts who just came up with that as a joke. So thank you, Rocky. <laughs> but uh, yeah, Peter Jackson, I was definitely also made aware of him more with Lord of the Rings, obviously, because, uh, you know, those were just like big event movies that were coming out, especially when I was like a little kid around that time. I was more interested in being at the time in something like a Harry Potter which was, like, coming up as well. But um, those were just, like, big events. Like, you had to see all those in the theater. And I've grown to appreciate those more, especially when I got the big Blu-ray box set of the extended edition back in April, which was helpful during quarantining, uh, because it's just like, oh, okay, can I spend so much time just in the middle or somewhere distant? But then I remember after those movies came out, I was like, oh, I should... What other movies has this guy done? And... Just the weirdness of it being like, oh, the, the the really early movies like A Bad Taste or Meet the Feebles transitioning over here. I was always like, how did that really work? How does he transition from doing these low-budget movies into something eventually like Lord of the Rings? And what I like about Jackson as a career, you can see incrementally with each movie how much like his filmmaking skill really develops from Bad Taste all the way to even, for good or bad, into the Hobbit movies and... Even the most recent the documentary he did, the They Shall Not Grow Old, how especially a lot of like his fascination with technology and working from meager means to bigger budget means, like it really shows from every single film. But Adam, would you agree with that? And what was your what's your history with Jackson? Uh, I want to say the first probably Frighteners, to be honest. Uh, I just absolutely love that movie. You know, obviously oh, I was yeah. a big Michael Michael J. Fox fan because of Back to the Future growing up and things like that. But uh, yeah, Lord of the Rings for sure would kind of cemented the deal. I mean. Like you said, it was an event sort of thing. We saw all of them in theaters. I mean, I had the collectible goblets from the uh, from McDonald's or wherever the fuck, Burger <laughs> King, one of those two. Once I figured out who he was, I'm like, the same guy who did these did the Frighteners? And then I kind of went backwards through his filmography and watched, you know, Meet the Feebles and Dead Alive and, and all those. Yeah, I, I mean, I absolutely love Peter Jackson when he's being Peter Jackson as you know maybe the hobbit movies and one of the movies we're talking about tonight sort of display uh when he has maybe studio pressure or not given complete free reign it's a little uh gets a little muddy well i don't know if that's quite the case with all the movies that like serve after look, a certain man, point look, that's my <laughs> fucking opinion all right I don't want to hear <laughs> well i think for me what's so interesting is i think Peter Jackson is also sort of the textbook example of, like, what happens when a really creative director kind of gets too many toys. Like, when they become too toy-obsessed. It's a similar vein to, like, a Robert Zemeckis or George Lucas, I would argue, where it's like, as soon as he gets more of, like, the technology and way less boundaries to, like, necessarily, like, keep him in check, it ends up kind of going overboard and becoming more about, like, oh, what can I do with this as opposed to how does this service the story, which I would argue through Lord of the Rings, the original trilogy he had. Oh, I do agree with you somewhat, you know, uh, with him as being a filmmaker that maybe has, in terms of like special effects and, you know, free reign, maybe too much of that. But then he does something like They Should Not Grow Old. I was just blown away seeing that in 3D and what he was able to accomplish when he does something interesting like that, like using this technology you know, using Weta for getting this World War One footage, remastering it to an incredible degree, and presenting it in 3D. I, th- I think few filmmakers would have made it work like like as well as he did with that documentary. So I'm a big fan of that, and I was interested to see you know what he did with the Beatles documentary, which was was supposed was supposed to come out at this time, right? 
Right, the original auspice for this particular podcast yeah. being in September was that, <laughs> and then that got delayed. But even though I don't know about that one, just because I get it with more They Shall Not Grow, which if you don't know, is a World War One documentary where he pieced together footage and also audio clips of actual soldiers, which is pretty incredible. I would recommend that documentary, definitely. I think with um, the Get Back documentary, I have trouble because every single thing I've heard about this is like, oh, we're trying to spin the end of the Beatles into something a lot more happy because Ringo and Paul are like more involved. I have some concern with that. That's like, are we rewriting history a bit with that? Yeah, on on that front, I I am a huge Beatles fan. When it comes to just Peter Jackson's Beatles documentary, I just looked it up just now. Like he's gonna have like the entire uh, uh, rooftop farewell thing they did, right? Like com- completely in its entirety for the first time ever. So that alone has me interested. Like I I understand like maybe he's you know they're trying to rewrite history, but I don't know like. Real people, I mean, real fans kind of know the deal, but for, you know, the fact that he has that footage and for however he's going to use the weather technology to, like, remaster the footage, that I'm more excited about. Well, and if nothing else, like I mentioned with, like, comparing him to a George Lucas, we can't deny the fact that him, like, really spearheading Weta and making it what it is to this day, I think is also just a fascinating thing. Like, obviously, with all the talented artists that are involved, but he has really helped uh, revolutionize technology for making films, for maybe good, maybe bad, but I think he at least provided those tools in a way that makes those mistakes at least somewhat reasonable, now that we have that tool for other people to use probably better. Yeah, and and time will tell if he'll ever get back to like low budget horror filmmaking, which I kind of want to see him do. But he's already just established himself as like yes, like a pioneer in this digital effects technology that just changed the world. And he also just he did so much in the in in his early career in terms of horror. I mean, there there are bad movies along the way, but I'm there every time a new Peter Jackson film comes out. Well, of course, there are good and bad Peter Jackson films like the two we're talking about today because we specifically talk every week about a good and a bad feature that was picked at the end of our previous episode. And so uh, we ended up with, between Adam's two good picks, we ended up picking uh, a movie that has various titles for our good pick, but we'll initially stick with Brain Dead um, is our good pick. And then our bad pick, which I have the two options of, though our patrons over at patreon.com slash gedvpod, ended up choosing The Lovely Bones uh, for my two choices. But we'll get into that. We'll get into all that. First, let's talk Those about... motherfuckers. <laughs> brain dead. On this picturesque block, in this manicured home, something evil is haunting Lionel. His mother. Now. Whatever mom's got has caught on with the neighbors. Trimark Pictures presents a modern masterpiece of horror, Dead Alive. Party's over. So, Brain Dead, as I mentioned, going under several different titles. Uh, Brain Dead was the original title in New Zealand, uh, but it also went under Dead Alive famously in the States. And has several other titles in other locations, including, um, I just love these. In Hungary, it's Corpses, with an exclamation point. Uh, In Italy, it's Splatters, the Brain Squirts. And my favorite, in Spain, it's Your Mother Ate My Dog, which is a line of dialogue. And kind of sounds like a weird Pedro Moldovar movie (laughs) that we weren't aware of. (laughs) Um, But which title do you prefer between Dead Alive and Brain Dead, folks? I I always say Dead Alive. Like, I I always start with that in my mind first, and then I go, oh... 
Brain Dead. This is also confusing because there's was, there wasn't there a, a Brain Dead, another Brain Dead uh, released in America yeah, with like right. that was the big reason. Like in 1990, one was called Brain Dead, just called Brain Space Dead, as opposed to Brain Dead is one word. <laughs> it's it's very confusing, but I mean, yeah, I I, I alternate between the two. Yeah, I I usually call it Dead Alive simply because of whenever I think of Brain Dead, I see the VHS case for the Bill Pullman movie. Yeah, his face stretched out, so I constantly think of that. So I just usually say "Dead Alive." Yeah, and I think "Dead Alive" at the very least is a more unique title. Yeah, I think so. Brain Dead sounds like something familiar. Like, oh, that could be any different zombie movie versus "Dead Alive." It's like, oh wait, they're dead. Twist, they're actually alive. Can we be the first to call it "Brain Dead Alive"? Can we do that? Well, that's the special edition that Peter Jackson came out with. I'm sure that's like four hours longer. He's working on remastering all of his older horror movies into 4K yeah. using his, you know, weather technology. And I'm, I mean, he, he's, he's not doing anything right now. Come on, Peter Jackson, get get these movies out there. He got the rights back recently to those. Yeah, so he's going to be doing the big restorations. I don't know how that would work necessarily for Bad Taste or Meet the Feebles, just because those movies kind of live on being grimy and having all that dirt and rust on them, as opposed to Dead Alive, while it is goopy and has so much gore and blood, there's so much detail I would love to see in, like, HD in particular. Oh, absolutely. Um, and, and the version I saw today as a rewatch, I'm like, wow. Um, yeah, this could be cleaned up a lot. And also, I have to mention that I've seen this movie twice in theaters. So, yeah, I've, I've seen uh, editions of this where it looks almost clear and hd and uh yeah i i want that 4k version yeah especially with like the if you watch because there's so many different fucking cuts of this movie the cut that i watched had like stuff that was only in like the new zealand version and it kind of looks like whenever you see these older movies that have like these small bits that are cut back in fully unrated where it looks initially very pristine and then has like really great oh yeah sort of shittier qualities i wouldn't mind that being more consistent but adam this was your choice and so uh why did you think this in particular personified everything that's great about him, Mr. Jackson. Well, I mean, I don't know if this in particular personifies everything that's great about him. I think this personifies everything that's great about early Peter Jackson. I mean, this is just a splatterpunk, nightmare fuel, dark comedy to the letter. I mean, this movie is so fucking gross and over the top and violent and silly and poorly acted and just awful soundtrack to it. But it's still just so unbelievably fucking charming. It's New Zealand's Evil Dead. It's a blood and gore visual orgasm feast of a film. Everything that Peter Jackson is capable of is here just on a minuscule budget. I mean, there's great set pieces, special effects through the roof. It's fucking kind of incredible that with the budget he had, he produced something this competent and then went on to what he became. He went on to helm one of the, if not the top grossing trilogy of all time, and then did another three that also made a decent chunk of money. For a horror director, someone who was based in low-budget horror, to go on and have the career he has, I mean, that's basically unheard of. I mean, even like Sam Raimi, like I mentioned, Sam Raimi's done, you know, pretty high-caliber works, but nothing compared to what Peter Jackson's done. I mean, the guy who directed this movie got a King Kong remake and the Lord of the Rings. I mean, what the fuck? This movie is so ridiculously fun and so over-the-top gory in the uncut version. I mean, there's a lot of gross shit in this movie still. The fucking custard. Oh, God. <laughs> yeah, it custard. grosses me out so bad. But I, it's just, it's so fucking fun. 
I picked this because, like I said, it's it's to me the best of his original three, probably the best of his horror offerings so far. I don't know, Frighteners is right up there, but this is this is really fucking fun. I'd be hard pressed to find somebody who has seen this movie who might not be a film fan to realize that it's the same guy who did Lord of the Rings. Like it's it's kind of like mind blowing. Yeah, I mean, watching it, I think, like I mentioned, you can kind of see from the evolution from like bad taste, meet the feebles to this, just how much he's taking on. Like even though the budgets are still minuscule, like this is three million dollars in New Zealand money, it still is able to like have so much scale and endless imagination put at it. And I think also another big thing that I think really makes him distinctive, even from a Sam Raimi, is Peter Jackson loves to have sort of like a stream of consciousness energy to all of his movies like this movie once we get to like the sumatran uh rat monkey biting the mother i think it just doesn't stop at all like you have set pieces in other movies and then you have quiet bits even the quiet bits in this movie are insane things like a dinner scene with all the zombies where they're all being horribly <laughs> like have their heads coming off and stuff like that well i have to mention this um i'm glad adam you picked this movie uh, because it is one of my favorite movies of all time. This is my favorite Peter Jackson movie. Uh, cinema itself, okay, it moves me, right? <laughs> it moves Nothing, me. <laughs> few things have moved me more than that custard sequence. I made a quick dinner, sat down uh, to watch this movie. Then I just remembered, I always forget this. I go, oh, wait, that fucking custard sequence. <laughs> so I, I made sure to eat quick before that came up on screen. Yeah, this is not a good movie to eat too. Like, like saying an Alamo Draft House. <laughs> the the two times I saw this was at a Draft House because they're insane and they're programming. The second time they showed it was like a mystery screening. It was around the time I think where the rights weren't, you know, anywhere. So it was right. like up in the air. So they were showing this secretly, and then I had already ordered my dinner <laughs> for that evening, and I go, um, I thought for a second maybe I should just box it up because I, there's there's no way I'm, I'm going to be able to eat during this movie. I think they've even touted this as much like it's like the goriest movie ever made in terms of actual gallons of blood or something like yeah. that. Something they've reported a lot, and you can really feel that, especially with just like from the moment we get like the mother even just like completely um, falling apart during that custard sequence it's there but also there's such a playfulness at the same time like especially the guy who's visiting it's just like oh it's such a lovely custard and doesn't notice that goddamn thing so oblivious it's perfect it does it's, it's such cartoonish fun that at the same time that it's super gory i think it was adam who said you know maybe you show this to somebody not telling them who directed it and they 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 wouldn't guess it was peter jackson if you saw the custard scene for example and you saw how dedicated jackson was to sound design and to just grossing you out, and then you then you watch like scenes from Lord of the Rings with the orcs, and the sound design there, and what's intended to creep you out and just disgust you. I could see that connective tissue. I can see how somebody like Jackson, making like Bad Taste Meet the Feebles, Brain Dead, would go on to make Lord of the Rings, the first three for sure. You know, insert some nasty Peter Jackson, this nasty you know, uh, take out the blood, put in like green blood um in, in the lord of the rings films not so much the hobbit movies that's another thing but but yeah it's it's one thing i was fascinated by uh watching this movie like in 2010 for the first time and just being blown away just and then seeing meet the feebles bad taste and just going oh god you know a guy who i've loved since the frighteners does something like this early on in his career and gets lord of the rings like that that's that's the perfect uh story right there <laughs> I, I mean i think you can particularly see it in like the the big climactic 
gory sequence feels almost like the silliest version of like Helm's Deep possible because you get certain <laughs> like little corners of this giant battle sequence that's going on because you have like all the different zombies and also our lead uh, the Lionel character and then also at the same time you have Paquita off in her own corner doing something like that almost mirrors like the pacing of any of those big Lord of the Rings battles because you have those individual moments of, like Legolas or Gimli or any of these other people I think you can see the early sort of framework of that really here and stuff like that would do you see any of that adam in some of these bits well yeah of course i mean definitely i i mean and what i meant to say earlier when i said I, i'm saying show this to just the layman's layman okay person. yeah yeah you know they, they're, they're not they, gonna guess that yeah. the guy who did lord of the rings did this movie as well but for people who are you know film lovers and stuff you can absolutely see uh as as i also alluded to with you know some of the camera work the the appreciation for visual effects the special effects the practical effects absolutely you you can tell uh see the growth from this to what he's ultimately become now yeah i i had that thought today i'm thinking i love this movie but what would like a normal quote-unquote normal person think of this movie this in particular when we get to that final sequence with all the zombies in the house and they're just destroying people i look down at the at the clock i go this is 30 minutes long like you know, to 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 your point, Thomas, it is like a you know Helm's Deep sequence. It is like a long you know uh, extended action sequence, but it doesn't feel long at all because it just has that rhythm as that beat, and it has gallons upon gallons of blood. I think that's the biggest difference between this ending sequence and then something from Lord of the Rings. It's just the amount of blood in it. It's just so excessive because when he brings out that lawnmower, I think first time I watch this, I go yes. Him using that lawnmower to tear up these zombies, this is one of the greatest movies ever made for me. This is it. Uh, because wh- where do you ever get to see that ever in a movie? We've had plenty of movies that have tried to kind of ape sort of like an, an Evil Dead 2 Sam Raimi style or even this movie since. And I think what those movies never quite get is sort of the cartoonish brazen energy of uh, stream of consciousness that's going on here because it feels just like oh we are going on this rapid ride and it doesn't really quite stop we have scenes maybe where we have like Lionel and Paquita having a bit of their love affair or we have uh, Vera Cosgrove the mother character really played well initially by Elizabeth Moody before clearly that old lady did not go into all the different special effects Scooby make after no no but like they, he does enough decent table setting in the first like 20 minutes or so so it's like Okay, we get all the basics we need, we know the dynamics of all these characters, but from that moment where the zoo bite happens, it just goes into full speed, nonstop. Even our quiet moments are going to be really weird, gory, and silly. Even moments where it's like, oh, we're going to have our funeral sequence are punctuated with, like, a weird couple mortician characters, uh, one of which played by Peter Jackson, and then eventually, as Adam kind of referenced at the beginning, um, a priest who kicks ass for the Lord. (laughs) Yeah. Like you said, there's movies that have tried to sort of ape this style, uh, this and the Evil Dead 2 and everything like that, never hit it. One thing that I've always noticed with like Evil Dead 2, maybe not so much Evil Dead 2, because it is very much what I'm about to say, but this one especially, it's almost like they're acting like they're in a slapstick comedy, but there's no bit. Yeah. Like there's no constant payoff. It's just a lot of overreactions, a lot of silly looks and everything, but there's no, they're not getting a hit in the head with a pan every fucking two minutes. Evil Dead 2, Eh, that's not <laughs> maybe that's that's the case in the kitchen scene alone but it's just it's it's so earnest in its attempt to be over the top yeah earnest is the right word i obviously see 
the Evil Dead Sam Raimi uh, comparisons. But it's that earnestness. It's it's the special kind of earnestness earnestness you get in Peter Jackson movies that is, that is I, I can't describe it any other, any other way than like uh, New Zealand ish, Kiwi ish. Yeah. yeah, yeah. It's I'm like yeah, especially the setting. Uh, like this little New Zealand town it takes place in it's yeah it's it's so unique that to me even when like Jackson tries to do Sam Raimi it's like apples and oranges at that point I'm like it, this is in its own world its own slapstick world that's so far off from like the American Eye slapstick that Raimi's doing which I also love so yeah that's why I put like Brain Dead in its own category it's like well <laughs> the amount of blood and also the practical effects. And the the uniquely New Zealandness of it all—that's what makes it special to me. I think you're absolutely onto something there because you watch, you know, movies, horror movies from New Zealand, and even some from Australia. You know, which obviously are not the same thing, and they'd be pissed if you said that. But <laughs> like, you know, what we do in the shadows, Black Sheep, Undead—all these movies have a certain charm to them because a, they're just allowed to make those movies. Like the government just finances their. And B, they don't have really a Hollywood system there. It's almost like Peter Jackson, when he made this, wasn't hoping this would lead to the next big thing. You know, he just wanted to make this movie and he had a blast doing it. And you can tell, I mean, just that sort of, it's hard to say humble when it comes to this movie, but that humbleness behind the camera to where it's like, I'm just going to have fun making this the best I can make it. And it's just, you can read it all over this and some of those other movies I mentioned. It's definitely a different world and a different sort of uh, approach in comparison to movies of the ilk from the States. Even the locations, like that opening sequence when they're on the island taking the monkey away. I'm so happy to see that anytime on screen, especially in a Peter Jackson movie. Like you see that later in Lord of the Rings, you see that location later in King Kong. And then like the, the, the town itself. Um, I hate this phrase, but it's almost like New Zealand is, is, is its own character. Okay. <laughs> um, I regret saying that. I regret it, but uh, but no, uh, yeah, it's nothing that makes this this movie like like, like its own like specialness. Like, yeah, I I don't know. I I wanted to go back and just do more of this, uh, you know, low budget filmmaking in, in New Zealand because he's obviously great at it. I, I do agree that there's like an idea like charm to, especially when we see all the stuff of the neighborhood, and it almost looks like with the little trolley and stuff going around. It's like this is like the beginning of like Mister Rogers. It feels so like sweet and genuine and wholesome that when everything goes topsy turvy as it does, it really works. Especially, I forgot this movie's a period piece and takes place in like the fifties. I think the last time I, I, I rewatched this, I had that same thought, and then I forgot about it till now. And then I go, wait a second. I think I think it's that moment when he goes to dig up his mom's grave and her and the her death date is nineteen fifty seven. I go, wait a second. This is this movie set in fifty seven. That never becomes like clear to me <laughs> at all in the movie well i think you start to realize that when you get stuff like at that same sequence you have the greasers pop up the yeah, new zealand that, greasers yeah. which i love even the fact that like their greasers almost seem just like oh these silly kids look at them go pissing on graves like that's the thing there's a consistent charm i agree that could only really come from this particular location and i think it really once again counterbalances all like the grossness and just the weirdness that's going on here i think particularly with we i can't believe we've gone this long without referencing the baby the goddamn baby. <laughs> with the playground bit, um, obviously, which was like a big extended sequence they shot because they had more a bit more money left and free time. They just shot that extended sequence. And like he has the energy of like a silent film. 
like a Charlie Chaplin or Harold Lloyd, anything like that. The way the characters act in general, despite the fact that they do say dialogue, they have the visual motions and sort of like comedic timing of like an old style silent film. Just the bigger thing is, oh, we're going to move the camera way more and we're going to have tons and tons of zombies and gore and all this other shit. But it still has that same kind of older sensibility that kind of grounds it, despite how, once again, wacky all this is at the same time. But then again, what I like about this movie, like a lot of other sort of like horror comedy movies that go this big, like A Return of the Living Dead, any individual zombie in this movie would be like the centerpiece zombie of a different movie. It's just that brimming with creativity. Yeah, uh, absolutely. And that that sequence with the baby in the park, there's no reason it should be there. And then to your point, yeah, like he just did it because he had more money. But I love that it's there. I love that it's just an, a long extended dialogue-less gag, and, uh, you know, I mean, stuff like that makes me love this movie even more. <laughs> Please, never cut that out. <laughs> and plus, I love, like, that's another example, like, the sort of stream of consciousness energy of the scene, where, like, you can tell there's so much cutting back and forth, like, oh, clearly somebody's in a suit for one shot, and then there's, like, an actual baby prop for another thing, and literally just Timothy Balm, our lead, is smacking it across the freaking swings or whatever. Like, it's clearly so many different techniques stitched together, but it never feels like you're just watching, like, three disparate different versions of the same set piece. What what just blew my mind just now is thinking how <laughs> this, that whole sequence, what you're describing, Thomas, is kind of like laying the groundwork for what he'll eventually do with Gollum <laughs> and, like, the Hobbits. Pretty the much. Like, this is just him working out ideas, like, how can we have, like, a baby, like, in full movement? So we've got to get somebody, like, in costume as the baby. And, oh, God. And then he uses those exact same te- – well, not exact same. But he uses, like, techniques based on this to make, you know, one of the greatest franchises of all time. Or even, like, a lot of forced perspective here, obviously, I would say. Like, yeah. That was a big factor yeah. with, like, Lord of the Rings. And you can see even in something as stupid as he's destroying a baby on this fucking playground. <laughs> like, it has the – that sort of, like – filmmaking craft where it's like oh my god of course this would be the guy who would like have hobbits look so much smaller than giant gandalf yeah and i was just talking to somebody who like wasn't like a particularly big fan of jackson's earlier work that was uh he said before he saw the lord of the rings films he wasn't sure uh of the outcome he's like well they got this new zealand guy who does horror not sure if he's capable of doing a lord of the rings movie but if you'd like take away the the gross factor from his or early horror movies, you see the craft there, like like uh, like you're saying. I mean, what comes to mind is just the practical effect of the zombies, and like the one that keeps coming to mind is um, when the baby takes that woman's head and splits it open and becomes like it's, it's like fully embodied. The woman I can't even describe it because it's so insane. <laughs> yeah. but every, Every time I see that, the, the cut to, like, you see the actress's face, then the cut to the practical effect of her face tearing open and the baby coming through, it's almost seamless. I, I guess we should kind of try and wrap this up because we have a whole other movie to talk about. But I, <laughs> I, before, before we do our final thoughts here, I want to ask everybody, what's your individual favorite, like, character or big sort of gory moment? Adam, what's yours? I mean, just the final 30 minutes, dude, with the fucking lawnmower. It's so fantastic. Either that or... Uh, when he throws the, I don't know, like the starfish into the nurse's head and her head rips back. And it's just like, this is so fucking outrageous. But no, the main, the main guy's my favorite, of course. I, I think he's absolutely just perfect as this sheltered mama's boy who all of a sudden just has to like, just suck it up and, and fuck it up. Although, you know, the, the Kung Fu preacher is, is pretty awesome. Uh, yeah, I'll say I've always loved Diana 
Penevlar, so I cannot pronounce her name, Paquita. I don't know. I, I've always clung on to her as like a great female protagonist because I mean, and then this this plays into like one of my favorite bits of um, of gore is her with that blender. <laughs> it's it's it goes on for a few scenes, but just she's so committed to just as many body parts as she possibly can in that blender. And uh, I mean, that blender work in that kitchen sequence is, is, is another great moment. No, I mean, for me, I would probably say like my favorite sort of the, the, the smaller characters is probably during the huge battle at the end, there is um, a lot of stuff with, there's this one blonde woman who gets punched through the back of the throat through her mouth. But then later on, she keeps showing up as, like, this weird, like, hollowed-out head corpse and is, like, on a light Um, at a certain point during the climax. Like, her head is inside of the light and it lights up. Is like, one of the more scarier things. But also a lot of credit to, um, I love uh, Lionel's uncle, Uncle Les, when he sort of gets his, like, spine pulled out. It's such a tremendous weird image. Shades of the thing there, for sure. Yes. Um, You know, it... Honestly, this is one of those movies where if I had the time, I, I could do like a top 10, you know, best gore effects in this. Because uh, all those you just mentioned, too, <laughs> I, lo- I love every single effect in this movie. Every single one just gets me. Well, would you say this is your favorite, then, of Jackson's films for you? Absolutely. Yeah. Um, you know, much love to Return of the King, which is my favorite Lord of the Rings movie. Much love to The Frighteners, which is, um, it was a childhood favorite and still is a favorite of mine. Yeah, the story is cheesy, but at the end it is like heartwarming, I think because of the earnestness and also just the gore and what Peter Jackson and, and crew and what it was able to accomplish, you know, in 1992, it still manages to blow me away, you know, however many years later. I can't do math, but oh, yeah, I, I love this movie and I was just pleased, you know, to watch it again and talk about it here because yeah, one of my favorites of all time. Well, those sound like pretty good final thoughts, Marcel, unless you have anything to add. I mean, that, that's it. I love uh, Brain Dead, and I can't wait until Jackson comes out with a, uh, a remaster um, of this so more people can watch it. Because currently, uh, it's hard to track down. It's harder than it should be. Yes, do completely agree with that. But Adam, your final thoughts on Brain Dead. Or dead alive. Or whatever. Your mother ate my dog. Your final thoughts on your mother ate my dog. Well, my final thought on corpses. You have to say with the exclamation point, though. Corpses! Oh, I'm sorry. My final thought on corpses! Oh, that's a question mark exclamation point. Whatever. (laughs) My final thought on corpses uh, is, you know, it's just, it's pure fun. It's it's just a roller coaster ride uh, filled with bones and gore and sinew and smegma and whatever the hell else you can imagine comes out of a body. It's in this movie. It's it's super fun. Uh, it's not necessarily. I don't know that it's my favorite Peter Jackson movie. I'm I'm really partial to the Frighteners and also Two Towers. I really like, but I, I absolutely love this movie. I mean, to me, this fits right up in the pantheon of the greatest splatter fix of all time. It's a, easily in the top three. Uh, it's just it's pure fun. You know, it's gross. It's disgusting, and I could see why some people would watch this would be like, oh, what the fuck. But if you give it a chance, I think you'll just have fun with it. It's supposed to be over the top. It's supposed to be silly. It's supposed to be a bloody, gory cartoon. And that's exactly what you get with it. It's just, it's pure fun. Yeah, like we've been talking about like all the big gore stuff. But uh, for me, like I still like the fact that it does have a solid, if simple premise to it. That's going at the same time. It's just like, oh, you know, kind of being 
held back by your mother and kind of like being um, under someone's watchful eye in a way that feels like they're kind of manipulating you over, you know, like being able to expand and go out into the world. And how that's ended up being, you know, sort of his struggle to get away from that is presented through um, a huge, masterful, gory escapade one after the other. I just love the fact that, like I said, it has a stream of consciousness energy that never really lets up after a certain point. But at the same time, you're not over-exhausted by it. You're just, like, fascinated. Like, okay, we're going from here, we're going to here. Like, Marcelo referenced that one point where the baby sort of, like, comes through that one person's head and then kind of controls their body. By that point, you're so, like, caught up in everything. It's like, sure, of course, okay. Duh. That's how this works. That's obviously how this works. Like, the movie does such a great job of presenting the idea that, like, nope, this all this stream of consciousness logic makes total fucking sense. Doesn't matter if it doesn't, really, in terms of any human anatomy. For the anatomy of this movie, it works perfectly. It's definitely one of my favorite Jackson movies. I'm, I'm gonna be the rebel here. I say my favorite is actually Heavenly Creatures, which is, like, the oh. exact opposite of this fucking movie yeah. in terms of what it is. Um, but I think that movie's tremendous. But at the same time, I can see why he couldn't quite get to a Heavenly Creatures this next movie right after this without doing a lot of the stuff in this particular movie. Um, but, but yeah, Brain Dead, Dead Alive, whatever it's called. Whatever you call it, it's pretty great. And we're going to get to a movie that maybe isn't so great in a second. But first, uh, let's hear this ad for an ESO show you can queue up right after our podcast. Are you one of millions of people worldwide with compulsive geekiness, feeling isolated and alone? Do you wish there were people that understood the thoughts and feelings associated with Geeky Flare Up? There is hope and a treatment program that can help. Ask your podcast service or ESO network provider if the Nerd Bliss podcast is right for you. Or go to nerdblisspodcast.com today. Side effects may include butthurt, movie quotes, nostalgia, warp speed, becoming verklempt, becoming a brony, appreciation of cats in the movie, pantyhose, asking God what he needs with a starship, donut muffin, or bagel, fat shoelaces, improved sense of rhythm, aiming to misbehave, nudity, and random arbitrary lists. Alright, so now we're getting to the lovely bones. Hey mom, look at me, smile. My name is Salmon, like the fish, first name Susie. I was 14 years old when I was murdered. You're the Salmon girl, right? Susie would never go off with a stranger. It had to be someone she knew. My father had the pieces, but he couldn't make them fit. Don't be afraid. So, The Lovely Bones came out December 11, 2009. We didn't mention this earlier, but um, he wrote this along with Fran Walsh, who has collaborated with him on all his screenplays since uh, Meet the Feebles and his partner, and uh, with Philippa Buenas as well, who also was like the main collaborator with Lord of the Rings. Um, and this was sort of his big follow-up after King Kong, and is based on the uh, Alice Siebold novel, um, and is a period piece about a young girl who gets horribly murdered and her family is distraught over it, but also we kind of follow her killer, and we follow a bunch of different other storylines that feel kind of disparate and thin after a certain point as we'll sort of get into. But I'm very curious, Marcelo, you, yeah. uh, I'm guessing when you said, oh, I hadn't seen this one movie before, you were talking about this one, not your favorite movie, Brain Dead. So, <laughs> no. so um, with your first watch, uh, what do you think of The Lovely Bones? Okay. God. So I tried watching this uh, a few months ago on HBO, and I couldn't get through it. I was just, I don't know. Like it, I think that first half, the first half is like good, and then it just kind of loses me because it just doesn't – I don't know. I, I've i never been this frustrated by an ending of a movie in a while because mm-hmm. I'm still trying to wrap my head around that ending. It feels very much like they've cut a lot out 
and by Saoirse Ronan's by her characters like final words like all right that's it I'm out of here have a good life fade out I'm like what what why what no that don't end your movie like that Peter Jack what are you doing a guy who's famous for having you know 10 endings for one movie has like no ending for this movie it just uh, I don't know it's frustrating I, that's my answer to your question Thomas I'm frustrated after having watched the lovely bones uh, for the first time that is that's a good adjective for it frustrating <laughs> very good i completely agree with that adam do you agree with that uh, frustrated it's a good good word for it i'm frustrated with it because it is so overly mellow fucking dramatic stop trying to make me cry because you're not going to do it with this boring ass bland ass fuckball of a movie it, it it is so so bad and so boring and it's so trying to be emotionally manipulative, but never fucking lands on anything. Like it never once goes to the point where you're, you're like, oh, fuck, and feel bad. Because it's so just all over the place. And look at this big, giant bouncy ball. But wait, the dad's uh, he's crying in his study. Ah, Susan Saran is a drunk. They're having fun throwing foam <laughs> on each other. Ah, he's getting beat up by a teenager. Oh, but look. Oh, they're turning into butterflies. Like, oh, what the, God. What the fuck, dude? I mean, don't get me wrong. Long live the Tucci, right? Stanley Tucci is adequately creepy enough in what he's given to do in this. So, like, he, he's kind of unnerving. The contacts especially are completely unnerving because they're fucking stupid. Why even have him wear those? This is just so fucking dull. It's a dull, dull movie. Think of the most boring fucking family drama you could think of with a lesser version of what dreams may come spliced into it. And here you go. There's the lovely bones. It's fucking just, it's bland from beginning to end. It's like two hours and five minutes long. It feels like five hours and two minutes long. Easily. Yeah, I'm glad I was uh, updating my movie collection spreadsheet as I was watching this. Because, yeah, uh, it, it's good background noise, <laughs> some of it. <laughs> well, literally all of like the heaven or whatever sequences literally look like screensavers. Like yeah. every single oh, one of them. I know, I know. With like a quote from Leonardo DiCaprio or something. Or inspirational like, photos, yeah, right. Yeah, <laughs> Just... yeah, exactly. You missed 100% of the shots you don't take. Like a tree turning into birds. Like, get the fuck out of here with this. This is the dumbest shit. And, you know, give me, give me a couple more minutes here to go on a tangent. And then I won't have a lot to say. The goal. First of all. Way to not give the parents any fucking closure in this movie. Like, ah, the safe gets buried, or corpses in it. Oh, well, they never even get to bury their own daughter. Kind of fucked up. And then, at the end, with Stanley Tucci, he just looks the same. He didn't even try to disguise himself. You're telling me they didn't put out fucking pictures of this guy to try to find him after they figure out he's the killer? And then the fucking icicle comes back into play. Oh, good God. This, it, it just, and then, it, what, what are we doing here what are we fucking trying to do here well that's that is my big question i do agree with you because i think the kind of bad that this movie is is the only kind of bad that can come from like so many different extremely talented people all collaborating and not knowing what exactly they're doing in this movie like every single person has a different motivation or is in a different movie entirely that's what it feels like because especially like the, the sort of uh, elephant in the room for this movie for me is mark Wahlberg. Where the uh, the big thing about uh, him, the most interesting thing about the production of this movie, was that that role, until like a month before they were going to start shooting, was Ryan Gosling, 
who um, had actually come to set and said, you know what, um, I, I felt like this character would benefit more from being a bit heavy, so he gained 60 pounds. And then Peter Jackson was like, no, that, that isn't how this should go at all, you're fired. And then they hired Mark Wahlberg so last second. And I'll say this, this is the only time I've ever seen Mark Wahlberg be genuinely afraid in a movie. Because he looks like he's like a lost puppy who doesn't know what to do. <laughs> this whole movie. I feel bummed for him because it's just like, dude, you're just like thrown into this and you have no idea how to make this work. Because like, oh, like sad sort of suburban dad character. Ryan Gosling would have fit that way better than a Mark Wahlberg yeah, who see, just looks in- so lost. Peter Jackson has made mistakes. I mean, uh, he directed the Hobbit movies. That's one mistake. Um, he didn't hire Ryan Gosling when he should have. When Ryan Gosling is one of the best actors working today, and when he essentially does the same kind of role in Blue Valentine, my headcanon is like he took his preparation he he did for this role and just, you know, did it in Blue Valentine. And he's perfect in that movie. So Peter Jackson made a huge mistake by hiring Mark Wahlberg and not keeping Ryan Gosling. Because I me and Mark Wahlberg, we don't we don't see eye to eye. He's only good in just certain roles. Like, I love him in I Heart Huckabees. I love him in uh, Pain and Gain. Um, obviously, Boogie Nights. Those comedy. are three. I, you like, yeah, I, you like him in yeah. comedy sort of type roles. I completely agree. Yeah. Or The yeah. Departed is but, like a non-comedic example. The Departed. Yeah. And also uh, the other guy's like, yeah, like when he's not taking himself seriously. That's when I can get along with Mark Wahlberg. And then stuff like The Happening. And he's just an actor who just either tends to just let loose or... When he thinks he's in the drama, when he thinks he's like being, you know, serious, Mark Wahlberg, he just fails. He crashes and burns. And that's how I see him in this movie. The tone of this movie is all over the place, and he's just not sinking in with what it's supposed to be. And he's just going, yeah, like like your point, Thomas, like a lost puppy. Like, he's, he's, he just, he's not good. Please help. Have you seen my Mark Wahlberg? <laughs> and, and, and also, could Rachel Weisz give him less of a fuck? And, like, that chemistry does not work whatsoever anytime they're together. It doesn't exist. No. no, it legitimately doesn't exist. Like, it's so bad. Rachel Weisz is like, you know, oh, you gotta move on. And Mark Wahlberg like, hey, hey, my daughter's dead, okay? I'm gonna look for her, right? <laughs> like, you're like, this is just... Look, he's got a bad credit report, okay? Like, okay, just <laughs> stop with this garbage. And a moment you brought up, Adam, it's the moment when I think of when I first tried to watch this a few months ago, I tuned out, is that montage of Susan Sarandon, who, you know, I said in the previous segment, and we talked about, you know, uh, Brain Dead, you know, a scene where a zombie baby gets kicked around in a park. You don't need that in the movie, but I love it in the movie. You don't need Susan Sarandon's character at all in this movie. She's alluded to as a horrible alcoholic with atrocious parenting skills, and that's about it, but yet... Yeah, she's also kind of funny. Oh, she's going to bring their house down. Here comes little Buckley with his fire truck to save the ashes yeah. and the day. Woo! That montage, and away that we montage go. Of, her, of her doing all those things, those wacky, you know, alcoholic grandma things, I go, yeah, this movie doesn't know what it's trying to do. It's, it's trying to go for like five different tones and it's not accomplishing any of it. Well, and it's, it also has so many, too many characters is the big problem, and we have so many focuses, because we have so many scenes where it's like, with Susan Sarandon, or Mark Wahlberg, Rachel Weisz has a weird two-scene subplot where it's like, oh man, my daughter's dead, I'm gonna go work in a fucking field or whatever, wherever the fuck she goes. <laughs> well, yeah. 
that she's also sitting down while everyone else is working the whole time and reading letters. Right. Get off your ass and pick oranges. And then also, like, the, the moments where we show Tucci just kind of, like, being contemplated and almost kind of being haunted by Saoirse Ronan, who we haven't really talked about even either, and is technically the main character in this movie, who's up in, like, fucking yeah. heaven or whatever, and is just occasionally, like, looking on at stuff. Like, if you had focused on any one of these individual things after, like, her murder and focus like that as our main perspective that would have worked. But the problem is, like, we just keep cutting to all these different things that feel so disparate, and it's like, how does this connect? Yeah. Except with, like, lame-ass logic of, like, oh, she touches the safe in heaven, so then the safe is, like, the connecting point, and then she let's, can make a rose grow? Let's not forget about her fucking, like, English boyfriend and the ghost whisper. He's now oh, shagging. Yes. Right? All of a sudden, he comes her, and then he kisses her. But, no, oh, hey, sweet. You don't freak See? out? Like, I would freak the fuck out. First of all, it's been years now, and she's still, like, 14, bro. You're, like, in your 20s. You're like, oh, yeah. Like, it's fucking weird, dude. It's weird. The whole thing is, it's so, and then it's, like, they focus so much on Stanley Tucci and that dude pushing the safe, pushing the safe. The whole time watching, like, well, she's going to go down there and stop them. Like, she's going to stop, or the safe is going to pop open or something. You know, to give the parents closure. No, we're not going to do that. Fuck that. We're just going to have a, another melodramatic scene piled on again for no reason that takes up an unexplainable amount of time. Yeah. It's just, what, what, there's, there's this fucking, so the little girl gets away because she hops a fucking wooden fence. It's Daily Tuesday. like, ah, got to pack up. <laughs> Curses. <laughs> My one weakness of jungle <laughs> friends. <laughs> You're stinking kids, and I would have got away with it, too. Uh, <laughs> it's, he's basically a Scooby-Doo villain at that point. <laughs> who likes to murder young girls, which is awful. But still, it, it's fucking ridiculous. Yeah, speaking of those threads, like, I forgot that uh, she had that English, you know, boyfriend she was gonna kiss. And then that other girl who could see ghosts. I forgot they were in the movie until that final uh, safe sequence. And I go, oh, yep. that's right. They're They're there. Um, I don't know. And then it just rushed to the end and nothing was resolved. And uh, I mean, I didn't hate this movie, but by the end, again, frustration. And I feel like this could have been either one of two things. Either Jackson took the note of like, like, he goes, maybe I should just go back. Maybe I should not make, you know, epic movies anymore. Maybe I should make a smaller movie. And he, he cut himself down or it was like a studio note. Uh, he delivered a, a cut that was maybe three hours long that maybe could have been good, that maybe would have given more character development, given that ending more room to breathe, because I just felt nothing, because it was just over so quick. So I don't know. Like, if there was a three-hour cut of this, I would give it a chance, because what, what I have now is just, it's like, yeah, it's two hours and ten minutes, but it feels very slight to me, which See, is weird to say. I get some of the stuff about, like, oh, maybe it's a different cut, but also there's a lot of sort of the, at this point in his career, post-King Kong, a lot of, like, oh, I'm still going to just have big, elaborate special effects stuff just because, like, all of the heaven stuff, like, that dis uh, completely unnecessary montage of, like, oh, look, I'm having fun in heaven, and I'm going through, like, a fucking magazine. I'm sled-dogging with a bug. Oh, fantastic. It feels like such a phenomenal way, especially of, like, a Sirius Ronan, who at this point's coming hot off of, like, Atonement. Shh. And she's so bland in this. She's I know, and she's such a great actress in, like, other things later. Yeah, she's amazing. But, and... you know, the thing is, I, I, I agree with myself. There is a, you know, the lovely bones of the story. <laughs> but the bones to the story, there is a really cool sort of idea here, man. There, there, there is. could have gone one of two ways. It could have been a really emotional sort of character piece drama. 
or a really bitchin' thriller. And the thing is that they just didn't do it. What came to mind, and I just rewatched um, Gone Girl the other day. I, I thought to myself, halfway, halfway through this, I go, what if Fincher directed this? It's like, sure, it wouldn't be as melodramatic. Would be a bit darker, but but Fincher has a track record for pulling off, you know, subpar plots. Um, not not to say, I mean, I love the guy, I love everything he's done, but he takes something like Panic Room, which on the face of it is just just, just a B movie, and elevates it. I really wish we would have gotten one of the earlier people tapped to direct this was Lynn Ramsey, who wanted to make it more from like oh. the father's perspective and almost make like all the heaven stuff more of, like from his imagination. So it sounds yeah. almost like oh, that would have been like uh, you were never really here but in, like, this sort of fantastical element off to the side, which I think... So what you're been... saying is she could have made it more focused. <laughs> she would have made, like, a good movie, right? That's what I'm saying, Marcel. That is correct. You win the prize. Yeah. Of this could yes. have been a fucking good movie with her doing it. Because, like, I agree with Adam, because, like, I think what you just said about, like, oh, it could be a really prestige drama or a thriller, like, I think that's here, but it's, like, two, like, 55ths of this pie is the problem because <laughs> it's so I, many I different yeah. storylines and it's a i'm so bummed this is also the only time stanley tucci's been nominated for an oscar for this uh, movie but of he, all things he kind of deserves it though i mean he really is good but the thing is like is he that good because he's that good in his or he's that good compared to everyone else who really doesn't give a fuck i think it's mainly on the strength of the sequence where he ends up uh, trapping saoirse ronan oh, which in so other happy. hands could have been like much more lascivious could have had peter jackson pulling some bad taste as it were ha 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 oh, oh that's true for the show so far <laughs> but i kind of agreed like marcel said this way back at the beginning of this conversation about lovely bones but like i think the first 30 minutes of this are clunky but at least feel like it could have been like the interesting movie it was aiming for where it's like, okay, we follow Saoirse Ronan and her, like the family life and all this other stuff. And sure, Mark Wahlberg's miscast on these characters don't quite work together. But it's like, I can see where this would kind of work even down to her like being lured by a Stanley Tucci into that pit. I think that's the Oscar clip, really, is just him doing that and how lascivious and sick it is, but yet tastefully done there. Um, but it's really after that moment when she ends up like walking around and she goes through the fog. That's like the point where the movie starts nosediving so hard <laughs> downward. I do like Imperioli as the detective as well. Yeah. They just didn't really give him much to do. But they, but that's another angle they could have gone with this movie. They could ultimately turn into almost like a police procedural Zodiac type David Fincher, like we said, type movie. You could have really done cool things with this. Everybody who was involved had a slice of the eight piece pie and it's all included and it's just it's shitty pie you know what i mean it's like rhubarb pie you buy at publix like, yeah, yeah, yeah. well it's it's rhubarb and apple and and pumpkin and like like i don't want that that doesn't work as yeah, a pie what the fuck yeah that's basically what this is but i guess we should definitely like sort of discuss in terms of like Peter Jackson's career, does this feel emblematic to you of, like, what would later be going on, like, from King Kong on, where a lot of people have said, like, oh, he's really gone downhill in terms of, like, especially blockbuster filmmaking? Does this feel emblematic of it, or just, like, a weird sidestep? Well, I think the CGI heavy shit in this, you obviously see later on in, like, The Hobbit and stuff. Mm -hmm. To me, it almost feels like a way to cut, not necessarily cut corners, but to solve problems. And it's maybe not given a second thought, like, oh, we can just do it in CGI. Let's just do it that way. And it doesn't work. It especially looks, like you said, it looks so phony in this movie, whether, whether in the, um, whatever, the middle part or basically purgatory. It's, it's so just 
sterile and lifeless and there's no weight to anything and that's ultimately what happens in like the hobbit that's my biggest problem with the practical effects there's no weight to anything uh and that's kind of what this is to me this is sort of the start of that in his career it's it felt like when this came out it felt like one of those movies where after king kong like like i kind of mentioning like he kind of wanted to do something smaller something more prestigious not to say King Kong was, wasn't, wasn't prestigious. I, I love that movie. But I guess in prestigious in terms of like Oscars, he's just maybe he's like, oh, I want another Oscar. I'll give it another shot. And maybe, you know, get some acting Oscars in there too. I'll love the Stanley Tucci. But I just looked at the who else was nominated that year. It felt kind of a slow year, except for Christoph Waltz, who won for Glorious Bastards in that category. Well, and plus, more importantly, that same year was Meryl Streep was nominated for Julie and Julia. And Tucci is way better oh, than Julie and Julia. That should have right. totally been nominated for that. Much better supporting performance. <laughs> Insane, weird. But it's a weird movie in his career because it, this should have been a lot weirder. Was this PG-13? Because it certainly felt PG-13. Yeah. It, 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 yeah, it, it certainly felt like he was holding back. And there were some visual cues that kind of felt very Peter Jackson. Like his use of like the, that certain type of camera that is like ex- has extreme close-ups of little objects. Like I love those little shots. But other than that, and maybe some some Heavenly Creatures vibes here and there, but other than that, it just didn't really feel like a Peter Jackson movie, unfortunately. Um, it just It's just too bland. Yeah, I think, for me, it feels like it's kind of the best example to me of why, like, you know, Marcelo, you mentioned, like, hey, maybe him going back to horror, like his low-budget horror days. I just feel like this is, like, the first example to me of him kind of trying to, like, kind of backstep and be like, oh, what if I could do another Heavenly Creatures? And it feels very much like the best example of like, oh, you can never go back home again, only amplified further by the Hobbit movies. Because I think with like those movies, like all four of those movies combined, it definitely feels like Peter Jackson is kind of trying to reach for something he used to have and not quite being able to like go for, like you mentioned, some of like the darker elements really steering away from that or like the practical effect elements or even just like really engaging in the characters nearly as much. As much as with this particular movie, it just feels like he has no clear vision beyond, like, oh, I want to do another kind of vaguely um, fantastical uh, sort of movie about, like, a criminal element. But with, like, Heavenly Creatures, why I love that movie so much is it has the clear perspective of those two characters, Kate Winslet and um, Melanie Linsky's characters, and you feel so engaged in their perspective. And even when they do horrible things, you're like, oh, but I totally understand these, like, young girls and why they would end up doing something so horrible later on in the movie as opposed to this you understand who any of these fucking people are like peter jackson is best mm-hmm. can make even a big sprawling cast as evidence in the lord of the rings movies you know who every single like person in the fellowship is or you know who like even arwen or some of these other people who aren't necessarily as developed as our core characters are you get a sense of who they are as people as opposed to in this movie who the fuck are these nobodies i don't give a shit <laughs> Ah, uh, no, and uh, I, I do love Saoirse Ronan a lot, and her in this movie, I don't know, it, she, I think by default she's my favorite part of this movie, because I think she's, she is a great actress, and she does help to deliver this connection to the character, and you do feel for her death, and, uh, but yeah, but just loses itself, like, I mean, yeah, this, the main thing is that focus, like, um, and defining the characters, it never really comes through. Especially when in the end, like she goes back on things she was, you know, 
uh, impassioned about. Like she, she, she just kind of turns on her, her main theme of like avenge my death. And then by then she goes, never mind, I'm good. So they, they literally turn a victim of a horrible crime into like a plot device. That's what she ends up becoming. Yeah. It's really fucked up. So that's, that's, yeah, the turn by the end, I'm like, oh, you know, I, again, by default, she's my favorite thing in this movie, but it's just her character by the end. It just, it just turns into something I don't uh, particularly like. So yeah, it's, it's a struggle. You can tell this movie is mainly her kind of trying to perfect doing an American accent because she seems way more concerned with doing that, hiding her thick Sarsha Irish accent in this movie. <laughs> but um, let's go ahead and wrap up our uh, feature here. If you have any final thoughts, Marcelo, on Lovely Bones, anything else to add? Uh, I mean, uh, for Peter Jackson completists like me, I think I only have to watch one other Peter Jackson film to, to, to say that I've watched all of them. But... I mean, I had to do this. Um, I had to watch this movie. I don't hate it. Again, my, my my main word is frustrating. And the little bits of Peter Jackson in there makes it worth it. Like I said, the, you know, certain camera angles and the use of the camera is interesting at times. Uh, but it's just really hard to like overall. It's It's just so disparate in its plot and its characters that, again, I'm still trying to wrap my head around that ending. I, uh, oh, here, can I throw this out to you guys? Because I, I was by the end. By the end, I was paying attention. Okay, I, I put down my computer and I was like, <laughs> "Let me, let me see what this movie is trying to say." Where exactly was she? And can I first start by saying, my interpretation of it was she's living in kind of this nether world of memories, and it's like that saying people say, like you know, uh, you die twice. You know, once is when you die, and then the second time is when somebody. You forget who you are, right? Uh, paraphrasing. Mm-hmm. I, by, by the end, I figured that was the case, that she just had to just go away because she, her, <laughs> this is horrible to say, but her family members had to move on and just forget about her. And so that was my takeaway of the movie. And that's why I'm just so like flabbergasted by it. Cause I'm like, is this what, what they're trying to say? Is this the, the theme of the movie? I think it's purgatory. And I think it's she can't move on until her family can move on as well. Right. Not necessarily forget her, but forgive each other for the way they sort of acted. And even as she alludes to in the awful voiceover, like, you know, sometimes horrible things need to happen to build stronger bonds to people and everything like that. So ultimately, the way, what I took away from it is like her dying made them stronger as a family. <laughs> Such a great message. Which is insane. <laughs> but that's literally kind of what she says. Weirdly intimate that also with this weird shit that happens also with the Buckley little boy character who's like, Susie's in the in-between. She's in the middle oh. ground. Like, for some reason he knows where she is at some point. It's it's one of like 15,000 subplots. So I saw her and she kissed me on the cheek and blah, blah, blah. Show that to us. <laughs> yeah. Do, do a badass, like a weird quasi-flip reverse haunted house movie where she's in there fucking and talking to the kids and the parents don't see it. And it's driving them nuts because the kids are driving them nuts saying, no, she's still here. Oh my God, the parents can't get past it because the kids say she's still here. These kids are fucking crazy and don't want to deal with grief. No, it's actually happening. Yeah, it could be so fucking cool, but nah, you just get a fucking throwaway sentence. Oh, I think she listens, daddy. Yeah, yeah, I thought I saw her too. Uh-huh, go say hello to your mother for me. <laughs> 
I'm all, I'm trying to rewrite this movie in my head real quick. And if if you wanted to end with that theme of, hey, uh, my death uh, by the end, uh, you know, will make you stronger. You know, maybe show the family not being such a great family in the beginning before she died. I don't know. Like, I'm trying to make this movie make sense to me. I'm having a hard time with it. And so that's why I'm not too happy with this movie. <laughs> well, in that way, you've, you've, you've become Peter Jackson now. You've become Peter Jackson. <laughs> You're trying to figure this out. Yes. Uh, uh, and then, and then you know, by just giving up, I just go, you know what? Whatever. Just have her say goodbye. Have a nice life to the audience. And curtain close. Whatever, fuck, I have to do some Hobbit movies. Adam, any final thoughts you have to add about the Lovely Bones? I mean, I agreed with frustrating uh, to begin with. And, and after talking about it and dwelling on it, I could feel my face getting red and hot because I, I, I hate this fucking movie. This movie angers me. Uh, I, it is such a cheap ploy to make people feel something, be it kids or parents or any well-adjusted person. It's so overtly melodramatic. And it has all these different plot lines that go fucking nowhere. But the bare lovely bones of it, hey, hey, but are, are, are there to make something cool it, or, or really good, something interesting. And it's just, it's a failure on all levels. I mean, yeah, it's, there's some cool camera tricks or whatever. But, you know, if that's your only takeaway from a two hour and 10 minute movie, then that might be problematic. I really like the Tooch. I really like Peter Jackson. I, I like Mark Wahlberg in, in Comedic Fair. I like a lot of the cast in this movie. That's actually a dynamite cast. No one knew what the fuck they were doing, clearly. Mm-hmm. Clearly. And this is what you get. You get a movie, like you said, Thomas, of all capable people, actors, directors, writers, producers, a studio, everything. And no one knew what the fuck they wanted to make. And they just said, ah, fuck it, do it, ship it. It's like Goodfellas. Oh, your store burned down? Fuck you, pay me. Doesn't matter, just make it happen. (laughs) And this is what you get. And it's just, it's a mishmash of epic proportions that ultimately doesn't land on any level. I mean, for me, I I would say, like, like it definitely is the only kind of bad that can come from so many townspeople working together and just coming up with something that doesn't feel like it has any straightforward motivation. Um, And I think I agree that there are certain elements that I think we haven't talked about, but the whole sequence where the uh, middle sister, who we didn't even fucking talk about at all because she's (laughs) such a superfluous fucking character, sneaks into Stanley Tucci's house and gets the diary. I like how that sequence is staged and it has sort of like a Hitchcock suspense element to it. I just think there's also problems there, though, with, like, some of the close-ups that also kind of intimate some of the later issues I would have with, like, the Hobbit movies, where they have the close-ups and they're those weird GoPro cams that he uses in the Hobbit yeah. movies. Yeah, see, that's that's actually, it's it's a it's a director quirk that he might have gotten on this movie and he uses in the Hobbit movies. Right. I think here, Thomas, I think it works because it just seems, like, too real and has a GoPro quality that I kind of enjoy, but when you use it in the Hobbit movies, that's where it doesn't work. No, not at all, because you don't want real when you're in, like fucking in the barrel chase or whatever the fuck you're doing. <laughs> but but no, I agree, it works better here, and there's like certain, like, or even some of the sequences where Adam kind of referenced, like, oh, if she was like there kind of talking to people ghostly, they have some of that, like when she initially dies and she like goes in like the weird husk other realm, like she's on a different slight plenty of existence in the same location. I almost wish they did more of that kind of stuff, as opposed to what you get here, like we mentioned, big fucking mess. But, 
We got some uh, other things to do before we close out the show here, including read some feedback from listeners out there. Because every week at DEDB Pod on Facebook and Twitter, we put out a feeler for like, hey, what are your favorite, least favorite movies related, whatever topic we're doing. And so y'all uh, chimed in about Peter Jackson, including uh, James Rodriguez. Braindead is a sweet-natured love story at the center of a gory, splattery zombie flick. Uh, they Shall Not Grilled is an exceptional documentary brought alive through the state-of-the-art technology. And as much as I love the Lord of the Rings trilogy, I really don't like the Hobbit trilogy. Um, Elwood Tiberius, at Elwood underscore Tiberius on Twitter, says, uh, Nothing really pairs like the wonderment of first seeing those opening shots in Fellowship and the soul-dissecting of of that from the Hobbit trilogy in every conceivable way. Um, Jonathan Habden McHale says, The Lord of the Rings trilogy kind of feels like Peter Jackson's Matrix. The films were almost uh, 20 years old and still look as epic as they did back then. Um, I do not personally blame Peter Jackson for the Hobbit trilogy, given there was a disparate situation involving licensing rights, corporate meddling, and a burned-out director. That said, the Hobbit trilogy is worse than the Star Wars prequels. Goofy exposition from CG cartoons is still bad, but it's better than long-winded side plots playing up Tolkien fan service. You can remember Dexter Jetster. Can you describe uh, Boren to me without looking him up? And then uh, Rafe Telsch says, uh, Dead Alive was my introduction to Jackson. Still remains one of my favorite guilty pleasure movies. Uh, The Frighteners is also a lot of fun. I feel like The Lord of the Rings just drained him creatively because his projects just haven't been the same since. I do wish we had gotten his turn to helm a Tintin movie. Um, and then Ryan Corderman uh, with his hot takes saying, Imagine thinking Peter Jackson made any good films. Wild. <laughs> this fucking guy. <laughs> Ryan's the jokester of our feedback section. Yeah, he's co hosted the show twice. He can say whatever he wants. Oh! This fucking guy. Obviously, a lot of uh, interesting mentions. I think Jonathan hits a lot of the nails on the head in terms of uh, what's wrong with the Hobbit movies. I don't think they're worse than the Star Wars prequels. I, I I honestly don't, but they are pretty bad. Although, I still think the first Hobbit movie is really fun. Mm-hmm. I think there's a lot of good ideas there. There should have only been two movies, but I do like the first one. Yeah, I, I'm doing the Lord of the Rings podcast. We're also doing the Hobbit movies, and uh, we've rewatched the first two Hobbit movies. I've, I've kind of turned on them from... First thinking they're all bad, but well, at least the first two. But now thinking they're just they're good, and then I'm I'm uh, I'm worried about seeing the third one, Battle of Five Armies, because I remember that being really bad. So we'll see how my rewatch plays out. But uh, I don't know. I still prefer the prequels. Yeah, I think with um, the the Hobbit trilogy, I think it's I agree that there's a lot of interesting moments. Like I'll say, even though the Desolation of Smog is literally the most inaccurate advertising in any movie possible, um, given you don't see that shit until the third movie. Um, I still think that has some of the more interesting moments to me, especially all of the stuff with Smog, like when actually Bil- Bilbo like enters and like all the stuff Bandit Cumberbatch is doing, both in his voice and like with the motion capture, which if nothing else, those movies gave us him in the mocap suit doing <laughs> the fucking Smog stuff, which is one of my favorite clips on the internet. Him just going around like... Ah. <laughs> Paul Bits and all this other shit. So funny. You know, going back just to, like, we haven't talked about Lord of the Rings in detail nearly as much, but rewatching those movies, like, earlier in the quarantine, I just remembered, like, man, how investing in all this, even with, like, the big extended editions, like, they never feel like they're over four hours fucking long. You feel so interested and what's going on, at least for, for me. I know there's, like, a weird contingent that's like, oh, God, they're so overlong, so boring, many endings. But at the same time, I don't think, like, 
many other stories would get away with a lot of the stuff Jackson does in those, but it's such big blockbuster filmmaking that I miss, considering, like, some of the recent stuff we've gotten, where it's, like, there's much more care, and more importantly, like, a better mix of, like, practical and CG stuff. If nothing else, I wish Peter Jackson would do that mix more than he does as of recent. Because I don't necessarily hate total CG, but, like, if you mix those two together, it'd be such a better product, I think, with any of those Hobbit movies, even. Yeah, I totally agree with that, yeah. And, yeah, I think to your point, where for me, you know, those Hobbit movies seem a lot more interesting in retrospect than uh, modern blockbuster fare, especially coming from Disney. So, yeah. Yeah. Um, and also, like, I do agree with Jonathan about, like, there was such a weird production problem thing with that, where Del Toro was going to be there, and he had to yeah. leave last second, and then, like, it was literally a case of Jackson was told, either you do this now, or we don't do it. It may have been his Ryan Gosling coming to set 60 pounds overweight moments. Maybe <laughs> shut it down for a bit, maybe not, maybe think think twice, maybe go, maybe we shouldn't do a Hobbit movie, maybe we shouldn't do uh, The Lovely Bones right now, I don't know. Um, but, yeah, I mean, I, I, I would have loved to have have lived through the universe where Guillermo del Toro ended up directing those Hobbit movies. I'll also say one I hadn't seen that isn't mentioned here, it's a really obscure one in terms of the Peter Jackson filmography. It's on YouTube right now because it's like really unavailable. I'd recommend it. It's more of like a TV special he did called Forgotten Silver, which if you don't know, it's like a mockumentary where the premise is Peter Jackson, who's like a talking head in it amongst like Sam Neill's also in it, a few other like New Zealand people are like, oh, we've discovered these long lost uh, films of this New Zealand director who like apparently innovated like all the silent film technology and all this other stuff. It's all bogus. It's all bullshit. It's a mockumentary. But Jackson does so many of these great recreations of like silent film techniques that feel almost like, oh, this is real lost footage. Like, it feels almost like it. I would definitely... That, that's an interesting little documentary short of sorts I'd recommend. Yeah, that one I for sure need to see. Just ignore the Harvey Weinstein cameos. Because he's one of the talking <laughs> heads. It. And it's like, oof. Okay. Can, can he also remaster that and give us a non-Harvey Weinstein cut? Can oh, harvey list cut, me? yes. I would, I would concur with that. Cut. Yeah. <laughs> or at least the harvey list cut, yes. I do concur. Adam, were there any other uh, sort of Jackson things you wanted to touch on before we had the feedback section? The only thing I really think of, I mean, honestly, because uh, that was all really good feedback, by the way. I still think The Two Towers is the best of the trilogy. But uh, as we've said this whole episode, we're kind of S and S D. Peter Jackson is amazing. I mean, <laughs> I, you know, it's just. I can't, I can't disagree with anybody's feedback. Like, the only thing I'll, I'll disagree with is maybe the comparison to Lord of the Rings to the Matrix trilogy, because I'd argue the Lord of the Rings has at least two and a half strong movies where the Matrix has one. Oh, yeah, let's let's not open this can of worms, please. <laughs> I don't, oh, my God. I, I, I mean, I'll, I'll slightly say I think Return of the King is, like, my least favorite of those three, but still, I think, pretty great. I think there's still a lot of, like... Yeah. I, if anything, my biggest, I just don't like John Noble that much. He's my one big problem with. I think he uh, go, he goes even more over the top than any of the other people in that movie, and that's saying something. <laughs> I'll just yeah. say. Um, but but before we head out, uh, we did have other one bit of feedback in reference to our Adam Sandler episode, which was our last one from Rafe Telsch again, who says, uh, "I appreciate your collective take on Spanglish towards the end of the episode. Great casting, good attempts by the cast. What a letdown of a film." Yeah, the James L. Brooks classic Spanglish. One of many examples yeah. of uh, uh, Sandler trying to go dramatic. And, I mean, we're going to see that again now because uh, since we released that episode, the Hubie Halloween trailer came out, which we're all so excited oh. for. Oh, yeah, I can't wait. 
So pumped. Are you, are you a Sandler fan at all, Marcelo? Uh, yes and no. I was a huge fan in the late 90s. I was there for The Wedding Singer. I, since then, you know, I've, I've seen his prestige stuff and fell in love with that and haven't seen a lot of his comedies over the years. But then when he does stuff like, you know, Funny People, I love Uncut Gems, Punch Drunk Love. When he tries, when he gives a damn, I love him. Well, uh, thank all of you for that feedback. We also want to thank some people like Chris Oliver, who does our intro and outro music. Uh, listen to more of his music at chrisoliver.bandcamp.com. Thanks to Emily Scarter for the art for our show. Uh, thanks to our patron supporters. As I mentioned, uh, patreon.com slash gedbpod is where uh, for just $1 a month you get to vote in polls for episodes that we do, like this very one where you all chose Lovely Bones for us. And uh, you can also pick topics that we do for the show and we also have some bonus episodes every month but uh right around the time this episode comes out there should be a poll for uh, october's coming and uh, we're gonna have you vote on which uh spooky horror franchise we cover in october and your choices are between the texas chainsaw massacre franchise and the child's play or chucky franchise two big hitters we haven't covered yet yeah i'm definitely curious which one will be uh chosen i mean obviously you have more actually I don't know if you do now. There might be almost equal amount of movies at this point because there's a lot of Texas Chainsaw sequels that there maybe shouldn't be. There's also a lot of Child's Play sequels. Uh, But I'd argue there's more better Child's Play sequels than there are bad. If nothing else, there's more diversity with Child's Play sequels than a Texas Chainsaw. (laughs) Yeah, okay. I'll give you that. There are some hardcore classics in the Texas Chainsaw Massacre franchise, though. Uh, if, if I were to pick, so. There is two of them. Two, Utah. Two. Two. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I'd say three, but... Oh, that's, yeah. what's the, hold on. What's the third? I'm fascinated. What, what are the three to you? Okay. One, two. Classics. Yes. And Rhythm. then I would give... You know, classics a loose term nowadays. I mean... <laughs> but when I think classic, I think Matthew McConaughey, Renee Zellweger. Oh, um, oh, God. Oh, God. <laughs> that is generation? a good movie. Yeah, I, uh, uh, you know, what, whatever whatever version uh, Shout Factory has, like their director's cut, like I think that actually is good, and I thoroughly enjoyed watching that a few months ago. So I'll, I'll give I'll give those I'll give that franchise three good ones. That's a scolding take. <laughs> Thank you. I'll put leather. I'll put fucking three Leatherface above that one. So we could talk all about that if you guys pick Texas Chainsaw or if you pick Child's Play, we can talk about Chucky and the Killer Dolls and that weird chronology of that franchise. It's so fascinating. And, uh, you know, we also want to thank one other person, Mr. Marcelo Piku, for coming on the show. Marcelo, thank you so much. And uh, go ahead and plug it away. Plug yourself. Yeah, I mean, thanks. First off, I got more worked up in this episode than I thought I would, especially talking about the lovely bones of all movies. Uh, So thanks, guys. As for me... Follow Talk From Society on Twitter, at TalkFilmSoc. Listen to our podcast, read our stuff. Support us on the Patreon. Thank you, Thomas. Because we have bonus episodes there. And, oh, I mean, this all leads to Going Helm's Deep, the Lord of the Rings podcast. I'm co-hosting with Rocky Juarez, Harrison Brockwell, Sam Van Heron, Alejandro Gonzalez. Uh, we're all hosting a Lord of the Rings retrospective going from Fellowship of the Ring all the way to Battle of the Five Armies. So those episodes are dropping bi-weekly, every two weeks. And then in the in the off weeks, we release bonus episodes. Uh, just, you know, talking to Lord of the Rings fans and whatever. Those are just laid-back bonus episodes that are on the Patreon. Patreon.com slash Talk Film Society. Thanks, guys. Oh, no problem, sir. No problem. You can follow us in our rinky-dink operation where we produce one podcast. 
um, over on <laughs> <laughs> that Twitter and Facebook at DEDBpod. And we also, you can submit feedback there or to deviledgedevilbill at gmail.com, all spelled out. And you can find me on at NotTheWho'sTommy on Twitter and Instagram where I post all my little musings. And I do some writing at MarianiThomas.wordpress.com for like film reviews and lists and episodes of the show, all of those stuff. And uh, you can find Adam building a weird like underground basement thing, but not to lure children just because he wants some place to be quiet. Yeah, I mean, for a second, for a fucking moment, just no noise would be amazing, especially in my household. And uh, for more great non-silence, you can subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and other podcasting platforms. If you're listening on ESO, uh, the great network we're on with a bunch of other great shows, you can still dig into the archives for about 60 or so episodes we did before we joined the network. And if nothing else, if you could rate, review, or share the show around to give us more visibility, we'd greatly appreciate it. Yeah, I mean, you know, not that fucking hard. As we said, we're a one-show production. Before we finally end this episode, um, we have to do our picking for next week, because we do that at the end of every show. Adam and I have two movies each, based on whatever topic uh, that we're doing, and we have each uh, two good or two bad. Uh, I have the two good for this next topic, Adam has the two bad. And our topic, uh, you know, about a year ago we did live-action Japanese movies, um, and we're going back to Japan, but this time for anime specifically japanese animation which is a topic uh adam and i are pretty big novices on oh i think i'm even more of a novice than you are like i i watched it some when i was in high school but i, I never really followed them like anybody says anime i'm like akira scale everything too well i know you like the hayao miyazaki movies a few other things like studio ghibli stuff yeah, like that yeah Spirited it away is like one of my favorite movies of all time but yeah but that's about it though i like the mainstream i mean yeah well, i don't know yeah i would say i'm in the similar boat yeah are you a fan of the anime at home or so <laughs> Well, I was just going to say, uh, remember when I said I was going to come back uh, next episode? I'm not going to come back for the anime episode. No, thanks, guys. <laughs> Probably a good idea. Um, no, I, no I, I really don't blame you. Well, I, quickly, I'll just say, I mean, from the, the big ones I've seen, like Akira and going to TV, like Cowboy Bebop, like, yeah. you know, mainstream anime, I'm like, yeah, these are good. Somebody just tried to make me watch Evangelion, and I'm like, oh, buddy, um, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> it's me and anime don't mix that well so yeah i'm 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 a novice on one hand and, and it just kind of like i don't know i don't get it on the other hand too well before you go and not participate <laughs> in the next episode you do have to help us out because usually adam and i would pick a number between one and ten for each other's picks and that gets us close to whatever uh, option we're doing for good and bad for the next topic but marcelo since you're our guest you get the honor of picking number between one and ten for both myself and adam's picks so for my two good picks, number between one and ten. Okay, I'll go with three. Okay. Okay. At number five, which would be the closest there, um, I had one that I've seen the live-action remake of, weirdly, but I've never seen uh, the uh, anime original version. I have Ghost in the Shell. Ooh, that's one of the ones I've seen. Oh, so you'll be the, the, the total otaku on that particular yeah. project, yes. <laughs> Uh, but then at number nine, I had Ninja Scroll. Also, I had never seen. Oh, God. I would almost prefer... I love Ninja Scroll, actually. So maybe I am an anime girl. I don't know. <laughs> yes, of course. You're one of the Sailor Moon scouts, I believe. Yeah, yeah I think so. Yeah. I'm drunk in Moon. <laughs> so Marcelo, number two, one in ten for his bad picks. 
All right, uh, here we go. Second number, and this will also be the rating uh, I'll give for my experience on this show: a ten. Oh, oh that's so sweet. <laughs> <laughs> my number ten. Well, actually, yeah, I put it right at number ten. Is Pokemon the first movie Mewtwo starts back or Mewtwo returns or whatever the hell you want to call it? Oh, yeah, it's the first Pokemon movie. I've seen that one. But not in a long time. So maybe yeah, I am going to talk to after all. Um, but no, it's well, not very good. No, it isn't. Uh, well, what about uh, your other pick, Adam? What was at the other end? My number one was Yu-Gi-Oh! The movie Pyramid of Light, which I have never seen, but I've heard it's atrocious. Yeah, I've heard that too. <laughs> Yu-Gi-Oh! I did not get into. Uh, but nope, we'll talk about all that next time. Uh, but until then, everybody, uh, let's have a quick party. It'll be fun. There's nothing in the basement, nothing coming. Just uh, ignore the lawnmower. It'll be great. Take your goddamn green contacts out, you fucks. <laughs> Good night, everybody. Long love the tooch. has been a broadcast of the ESO Network. Be part of the crew and help support our shows by donating to our ESO Patreon or by shopping for the Tee Public Store, which can all be found at www.esonetwork.com. The ESO Network, your station for all things geek.